Welcome to Wolves and Weeds podcast. I'm one of your hosts, William. Hello, I'm Balint, your other co-host, and this is Volume 1, Episode 1, The Land Before History. In this first volume, we're going to talk about the shift from a hunter-gatherer society to an agricultural-based society through the domestication of plants. We split up plant and animal domestication so we could tackle each one more thoroughly without people being overwhelmed by all the information. So it's not necessarily all in chronological order, but we divide it up into topics that are easier to digest. In this episode, we will take a look at the environment in which this massive shift occurred. So today we will diverge a little bit from our favorite topic, biology, and talk more about astronomy and climatology to understand ice ages, uh, what caused them, and in particular, the effects of the end of the last glacial period and the beginning of the so-called Holocene era. So welcome to the show. Sit back and relax, and we hope you enjoy the ride. So why do you think we should start with agriculture in general? Well, throughout history, it's kind of been shown that a majority of human advancements, whether they be in the arts or the sciences, have come a majority of time at a time of abundance where all the populations had enough food and people weren't worrying about how they were going to eat where they're going to live protection and things like that and you can't have these large societies and these large populations without a really um, uh, consistent and reliable food source and hunter and gathering didn't really help out with that because you had to be nomadic and move from place to place and if you don't have one place to be kind of the center of your population then it's kind of hard to have advancements when you're picking up and moving every week or so or every season yeah. with the, with the changing patterns of the different animals. Yes, also, as we will see in later episodes, agriculture requires a lot higher level of organization than hunting and gathering. So it really helped to trigger the emergence of first societies as we understand it today. So uh, even though the majority of the population remained primary food producers, so farmers, essentially, but uh, a smaller, quote-unquote, ruling class emerged, which helped organize labor, distribute tasks, collect goods, keep records, and so on. So uh, a group of kings, priests, scribes, warriors, and so on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, without some kind of organization and some kind of division of labor, if everybody is overlapping each other, then you're not really having any progress as a species. So Yeah, or or any type of internal structure uh, to your society. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you need, yeah, you need tasks to be divvied up so that there's, like I said, no overlap, and so that people can focus just on their task at hand. I mean, if scientists had to also go and and work farms or whatever just to sustain themselves with food, 
how much science, you know, would we really get done if people are worrying about where their meal is coming from? Yeah, I mean, that was still the case for most of the agricultural period as well. So up until the Industrial Revolution, when we had, uh, you know, machinery, uh, fertilizers, things like that, uh, the vast majority of the population was still farmers through the the middle the ancient ages middle ages and the early modern age so i think it's really only the past 100 or 150 years when a large part of society moved from from just farming to either industrial work or services yeah that's true and i mean i know causation isn't always correlation but we also have had the most scientific breakthroughs in that period of time Although I know a lot of that also is because of the work that was done before the Industrial Revolution, but... Yes, for sure. Yeah, but, it was centuries of scientific progress that really laid the foundation yeah. for, for the more recent discoveries. Yeah, well, kind of also, but there's like a lot of stuff that got lost during the Dark Ages too, so we actually had some of these advancements that we kind of consider to be kind of newer technologies... Uh, I believe in the first century, there's like a, somebody found an old like first century steam engine or like a crude, crude version of one. And then the Baghdad battery dates back to, I want to say the 900s. Um, maybe I think it's, it's, uh, Something like 500 BC, but I'm also not sure. Oh, okay, yeah. But yeah, you're definitely yeah. right that lots of information were lost uh, during, for example, the burning of the Great Library of Alexandria, mm -hmm. which is still debated when it happened. I read that some people claim that it was during Julius Caesar's conquest of Egypt. Some people say it was during the 600s when the Arabs invaded Egypt and took it from the Byzantine Empire. So we're not really sure when it happened, uh, but what we're sure of is that there was a library in Alexandria, and then after a while it, there wasn't. And we know that there were tons of books containing philosophy, literature, science-related uh, topics that were lost. To understand human progress and history, I think we need to go back to the beginning to see how and why humans shifted from an uh, to an agricultural production from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Yeah, because majority of the human existence we've been hunter-gatherers, it's been a relatively small time evolutionarily-wise and historical historically that we shifted from uh, hunter-gathering to agriculture. Yes, I believe there's there's still some scholarly debate so uh, I'm not really up to date on that anthropological part, but I think most scholars agree that Homo sapiens sapiens has been around for like 300 to 500,000 years, if I'm not, not mistaken, and agriculture has only been around for about 10,000 years. So it's just a tiny fraction, fraction of human existence. So... With the with the shift from hunter gatherer to agriculture, were, was there like one epicenter, or did it kind of start to evolve in different areas and then spread out from there? Well, it had multiple epicenters, so that's gonna be 
the main topics of our upcoming episodes. One major epicenter was the so-called Fertile Crescent, which is in the modern-day Middle East, so parts of modern-day Egypt, Israel, Lebanon, certain parts of uh, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. So it's basically an arc linking the Nile and the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So that was one major epicenter. A second one was in southern China, where the domestication of rice occurred. And then in the New World, there were two major epicenters, one in the southern part of Mexico, uh, in the state of Oaxaca. And the other one uh, was, I think, in the Andes Highlands, so modern-day Peru, Bolivia. And there were some smaller epicenters, of course. So uh, some plants were domesticated, I think, in the Sahara region, uh, which is the area south of the Sahara. So uh, certain plants were domesticated in Africa or in the Indus Valley in India. So uh, there were some smaller epicenters as well. But I think the four major ones were the Fertile Crescent, Southern China, Southern Mexico, and Peru. Mm-hmm. And did it spread like quickly from there, or did it kind of take a while for agriculture to really take hold in other places outside these epicenters? Well, it depends on how you define fast or slow. So compared to the many, many millennia of living as hunter-gatherers, it was really fast. But in our modern sense, it was kind of slow. So I think by 1 AD, almost all humans lived off of agriculture instead of hunting and gathering. So about in about six to 8,000 years, the majority of humans converted from, from hunting and gathering to agriculture. And like we were talking about earlier, this resulted in uh, divvying up of tasks and labor which helped to facilitate the first civilizations since they were able to have a population boon due to their reliant and constant food sources. So that really helped give birth to cities, writing systems, military, organized religion, and all the things that we kind of recognize as modern human culture. Yes, definitely. So one of the key topics that we will be talking about later uh, in some of the episodes is how the spread occurred because there are a couple of competing theories. One is that only the knowledge of agriculture traveled across the land, so to say. So uh, it was only the idea of how farming is done. And the competing theory is that it was not just the thoughts that traveled, but also the people. So. Uh, cultures that shifted to agriculture became more uh, became stronger militarily and also economically. And so they kind of pushed their own agenda, so to say, on the other tribes. And that kind of triggered the wave of conversion. Yeah, because if you have more resources and you're able to keep a better stocked, uh, stocked and fed military, then hunter-gatherers really have not much of a chance to uh to resist any of that so yeah you kind of just spread it by the sword so to speak 
Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of recent historical records of that as well. Uh, if you think about European colonists coming across hunter-gatherer tribes, either in North, uh, North America, South America, Australia, or uh, Africa, and uh, it's, pretty, it's been pretty lopsided. Yeah, exactly. So earlier in the episode, we mentioned that we were going to go over ice ages and their effects. The reason why we're going to cover this is because the environmental impact of ice ages directly impacted the ability to switch from a hunter-gatherer to a more agricultural society. Um, so what is the life cycle of an ice age? Well, uh, to understand this, uh, you need to like get away from that notion that ice ages just suddenly switch on or off. So, uh, Usually an ice age starts with like a really long gradual cooldown period and then there's like a shorter so-called oscillation period where the, the global temperature and also the extent of the ice sheets kind of oscillates back and forth and then it reaches what's called the glacial maximum so the coldest global temperature and the maximum extent of the ice sheets and then uh, this maximum global maximum causes like the ice sheets to become too unstable partially because they extend way too far over the oceans and then the whole thing starts to break down and so the glacial maximum is followed by a relatively uh, intensive warm-up period when uh, the when the the earth uh, go, goes to like a really uh, really fast uh, warming period and uh, that triggers what's called the interglacial period uh, which lasts about 10,000 years and so the uh, interglacial period is what we're in right now right with the melting of the ice caps mm -hmm. yeah yeah the interglacial period started about 14,000 years ago and the last glacial maximum was about 20 to 18,000 years ago if okay. I'm not mistaken so you mentioned that these cycles happen about every 100,000 years. So how do we know that there's such a rigid time period to these cycles? Well, these cycles are related to orbital changes, uh, which are commonly known as Milankovitch cycles, named after Serbian scientists who first described them and attributed them to the Ice Ages. And uh, one factor that's affecting these uh, periods is what's called obliquity, which is the Earth's tilt com uh, compared to like the theoretical vertical axis that would be uh, perpendicular to the orbital plane. And it, sorry, so it's this angle that also affects like the seasons, right? So it um, affects the intensity of each one because it determines how close to the sun the Earth is angled versus how far away from the sun, correct? Yeah, exactly. So the the tilt affects how much sunlight each hemisphere gets during the summer or the winter. So this is one effect. Uh, the other one is called precession, which is how the Earth's axis is not completely stationary, but it also rotates. So the rotational axis rotates, if that makes sense. So, so, that, so that means when the Earth is orbiting the sun, that the same spot is not always directed towards the sun at the same point every year. 
So yeah, so the equinoxes are slightly shifting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the axis isn't tilted the same way year long or year round. Every time the Earth rotates around the sun, uh, there's a different part of the Earth, or sorry, there's a there's a different angle that the Earth is tilting towards the sun. Yeah. So these two effects kind of go hand in hand, and the third one is. I think it's called ellipticity or something like that. So it's basically the Earth's or, uh, orbit is not completely uh, stationary, so to say. So it's slightly changing between a more uh, circular and a more elliptical shape. And this is affected by the gravitational pull of Jupiter and Saturn. So this causes like a change between the the closest point and the farthest point that the Earth is from the Sun. So these are the cycles that determine the 100,000-year Ice Age period cycle. And these effects can propagate or diminish each other's effects on um, the environment of Earth. So when they are working together, then they can cause a lot of sunlight to be directed towards the Northern Hemisphere. Is that correct? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, just like you said, these effects can either uh, strengthen each other or weaken each other, and they heavily determine how much sunlight the northern hemisphere gets during the summer. So, why are we more interested in the northern hemisphere than the southern hemisphere? The reason why the northern hemisphere is what we're interested in, in this case, is because most of the landmass is located in the northern hemisphere and landmass has a lot lower thermal capacity than water, which means that it's a lot harder to, to cool down water or to heat up water compared to, to land. So then plate tectonics also played a huge role in some of the, the Ice Age stuff too then, right? So the more mm -hmm. mass is uh, concentrated at the poles, the more ice is going to accumulate there versus where if there's no landmass present, then the snow will just drift into the ocean and then melt off there instead of accumulating into huge ice sheets. Yes, exactly. So if you think about water, you always have some sort of thermal exchange, partially because of uh, four degrees Celsius water is the most dense. So when it starts to cool down and it reaches 4 degrees Celsius, it will just sink to the bottom and it will be replaced by warmer water from the bottom. So there's a vertical heat exchange. But also, if you have just a large open ocean, yeah, you also have a polar to tropical heat exchange, if that makes sense. So the colder water from the poles will be replaced by warmer water from the tropical areas. Yeah. Whereas if you have a landmass over the North Pole or the South Pole, or you, it doesn't have to be exactly on the pole itself. It, uh, if it's close by, then it will also trigger a similar effect, simply because it will block la large parts of the, the ocean currents that have this thermal exchange. And also, as you mentioned, if, if snow falls onto the landmass, then it will start to accumulate because not all of it will be melted away during the, the summer. And 
it also has a self-propagating effect if you think about the albedo. Mm -hmm. Which is the amount of light that's reflected uh, from the Earth's surface, mostly due to the ice. So the more light that's reflected from the ice, the less heat that's being absorbed by the planet itself. So it just is kind of a feedback loop. Yes, exactly. And uh, there's another feedback loop in effect that's related to the carbon dioxide levels. I guess one of them would be that uh, a large amount of air was contained in the ice uh, in forms of air bubbles. Also, the ice blocked away the land underneath. So normally there's like a natural carbon cycle of carbon dioxide being released or absorbed into the soil as well. And if there's like a huge block of ice on top of the soil, then that's also sequestered, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the CO2 yeah, was in reserves in the ice caps, in the ice cores. Um, but then another thing was the colder ocean temperatures because carbon dioxide is much more soluble at lower uh, water temperatures. And in some parts, the oceans got up to five degrees Celsius cooler during the ice age. And a recent paper uh, said that might account for almost 50 percent of the uh, decrease in atmospheric CO2. Yeah, also I would imagine that uh, the different ocean currents and also the colder ocean temperature propagated uh, a shift in phytoplankton production. Because if I remember correctly, phytoplankton is uh, is a lot more effect. Not I would say I wouldn't say effective, but it grows a lot faster in colder oceans than warmer oceans. Yeah, and also there was uh, iron-laden dust that was coming off continents and was um, collecting on the surface of the Southern Ocean, and all this iron also helped to lead to the phytoplankton bloom, which, as you said, yeah, they absorbed uh, another uh, about third or so of the carbon during the time. So there were multiple feedback loops in play, right? So uh, the increasing albedo and the decreasing uh, atmospheric greenhouse gases. Yeah. And I would imagine that it works in reverse as well. So if you have increasing atmospheric CO2 and uh, decreasing albedo, then that would speed up the warming process. Yeah. And also the rise in CO2 after the ice age helped foster agriculture because plants need CO2 to grow so there being more atmospheric CO2 helped to increase plant yield. Yes exactly. So another interesting thing about the lower uh, CO2 levels and also the lower ocean levels is that the forests were a lot smaller compared to grasslands as you would uh, expect them to be today. And one of the major reasons is the lowered amount of precipitation, which is pretty self-explanatory if you think about it. Uh, so you have lower ocean levels, so you have less water evaporating from the oceans. Uh, so you have less clouds and less rainfall that falls onto the landmass. And normally forests require higher amounts of rain compared to grasslands. So that caused a huge shift from from forest areas to 
uh, tundras and uh, savannas and that those kinds of biomes. Mm-hmm. And these uh, the shift from wider grasslands to forests also had an effect on some of the animals that were living through the ice age whose bodies were uh, evolutionarily geared towards these wider ranges and these colder temperatures so there being a shift to warmer climate and denser and larger forests also had an effect on the species living at the time as well right yes exactly so one of the major factors in this is uh, thermoregulation so if you think of an animal as an abstract object as a cube then if you increase its size then the the area of the animal so the area where the animal can lose heat is uh, increased by x to the power of two but the the volume of the animal so the mass uh, that helps the animal produce heat to keep itself from free- freezing will be increased by x to the power of three so uh, this is a common phenomenon that can be still be observed today. If you think about polar bears, they are a lot bigger than brown bears, simply because with their bigger bodies, uh, they can conserve heat better. So uh, this cooler global climate helped create what we call the Pleistocenic megafauna, uh, which if you've ever seen the movie Ice Age, it's pretty much what, what it was like. So giant uh, woolly mammals, woolly rhinos, other types of like massive animals. Saber-toothed part- tigers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So obviously, because the herbivores were bigger, the carnivores were also bigger. Mm-hmm. But uh, with climate change, uh, this, so uh, as we discussed before, the grasslands started to lose ground compared to forests. And normally, forests, uh, evolution-wise, forests favor smaller-bodied animals that are more agile and can move across the trees faster and easier than massive mammals. Yeah, because there's always that, you know, the myth that humans cause the extinction of all these megafauna uh, after the ice age but really what happened was the numbers were kind of already starting to dwindle due to um, these other pressures such as climate change so yeah and habitat peri- changes yeah and habitat changes because there are periods in the past after ice ages where the megafauna of those time periods were still, able to um exist they didn't go completely extinct but when yeah, you add they could the, recover from the interglacial periods mm-hmm. but yeah when you add the the pressure of a new predator that they're not prepared for it just it wasn't a, they weren't able to recover their numbers anymore and and were hunted to extinction yes it's been a really long ongoing debate so i've seen both sides of the argument it's really interesting uh, to see how you can see a really sharp drop in the number of large-bodied animals in any any area where humans showed up. So I think in Asia, in North America, 
in Australia, all, almost all the continents except Africa, which I found really interesting. Hmm. Did they say why that might be? Yeah, I think they mentioned that the, so the most commonly accepted theory is that because humans evolved in Africa, the local fauna basically co-evolved with humans. So they weren't really impacted because they already knew how to live together with humans because they have been doing that for millions of years. Yeah, makes sense. Whereas yeah. in other areas, other continents, humans suddenly showed up. And as you mentioned, they were a new predator that the local fauna, the local herbivores especially, they weren't really prepared for. Yeah, and the reason why the humans hunted them so much was because they're giant animals. So they got a lot of food out of those. It's easier to sustain uh, a population with one woolly mammoth, and it's more efficient energy-wise than going out and hunting, say, 20 rabbits or so. Yes, exactly. Like, uh, hunting in general always favored big-bodied animals compared to tiny ones. Yeah. Exactly. And then the extinction of, of these great food sources could also have been one of the catalysts that helped shift from hunting gathering to agriculture. Because also I, I read that one of the other consequences of the extinction of the megafauna was that it decreased the diffusion of nutrients such as phosphorus that are needed for plants to grow. So it's also theoretically possible that since the nutrients weren't being dispersed to such wide regions anymore and they were kind of more pockets of concentrated uh, regions of these nutrients, then it might make sense to say, hey, our crops grow well here but not there, so why don't we settle down here where we know the crops will grow? Oh, so you're saying that phosphorus wasn't really dispersed equally uh, across wild plant species? No, not not or that just I in read. general. Just in so in general, what I read was so since these larger megafauna have um, wider ranges and have higher energy levels, they're able to disperse plants, uh, seeds, and nutrients, and all that stuff to uh, wider range areas. But mm -hmm. once there were more, uh, the shift began to smaller bodied animals, they didn't have quite the wide range. So they were no longer um, able to really disperse the nutrients like the larger megafauna did with their larger range. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. And then humans are more uh, a species that really concentrates nutrients in one area, so they're not really effective dispersers of nutrients, um, which is why another reason why you know people buy topsoil and stuff like that because the nutrients have been depleted from the soil naturally, so people have to buy additional. Uh, nutrients to be able to grow their crops better. Yeah, to replenish the nutrients in the soil. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So to summarize all of this a little bit, we have rising global temperatures, melting ice sheets, rising atmospheric CO2 levels, which help the growth of plants, help the plants grow faster, 
basically. We have rising sea levels, which increase the amount of precipitation. So it helps, again, plants because they get more rainfall. And we have diminishing previously available food sources because of the widespread extinction of the megafauna. So one of the reactions to this changing environment uh, for humans, so the changing distribution of available resources, uh, especially food, was the adoption of agriculture. Yeah, so it, yeah, it started to make more sense to do that. Um, so we just went over some of the factors that helped humans shift from a hunter-gatherer to a more agricultural-based society. And next time on the show, we're going to talk about why uh, it was a good idea to shift from hunting gathering to agriculture and what the benefits were of shifting to this new mode of food source. Thank you for listening to our podcast, and we hope you enjoyed the show.